Well, good morning again. You know, one of the most powerful words in the English language is hope. You think about it, you can face just about anything as long as you have hope. And it's going to be hard to face another day if you ever get to the point where you lose hope. And the world is filled with so many things for you to hope in, but, but our hope is not the hope of the particle board hope of this world that's temporary, that's fleeting, that can't hold up to the weight. Our hope is cement-filled hope based on the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's something you can build on. That's something you can put your life on. That's something you can put eternity on top of. That kind of hope. So we're, we're obviously celebrating the resurrection today. And it's interesting, as you read through the gospel accounts, they don't make a lot of time to argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They just tell you the story. This is how it happened. And so you have all these things that, that, that go on in that story, and you have these ladies that are there before the breaking of the dawn. They go while it's still dark because they, they want to do this last act of honoring. And then they show up, and they're thinking, how am I going to get this stone out of the way? That's pretty big. And they show up to an open tomb with angels all over the place. And they're like, what are you doing in a cemetery looking for living people? Right? He's not here. He's alive. Why, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then you get stories like Peter and John and their foot race. And John makes sure we know that he's younger and faster than Peter. And, and, and he gets there first. And, you know, there's this, this, we don't know exactly what's going on. You know, they, they don't exactly cast themselves in the smartest light. Even though Jesus has told them multiple times, three days I'm going to rise again. Why are you surprised by this? But they just don't get it. And they don't cast themselves in the greatest light. But it just tells the story of a cross. And it tells the story of a resurrection. And then we have to wait for the unpacking of all these things from the apostles. Like, what does this mean? What is this about? Because it's simply a historical fact, a historical reality at the center of everything. That changes everything. And so it's a historical reality that we get to look back on. There's evidence for it. We can talk about it. It already was accomplished in human history. But it gives direct present day hope for the living of present day lives. In present day circumstances with present day joys and present day hardships. As it secures for us this future glorious inheritance. It's a past event that is very present and guarantees a really amazing future. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And so Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is in it of your souls. Let's pray together. So, Father, how pitiful are our words, my words, to convey the world-shaping reality of your son's death and your son's resurrection, the eternal shockwave of the resurrection. And so I pray, Father, for mercy to speak as I ought to speak. I pray for mercy for people to hear. I pray for mercy to abound that dead men and women Deceived by religion, deceived by their works, deceived by their heritage, that dead men in this room right now and dead women in this room right now would hear your voice and come out of graves into life. Father, I beg you, let my little words with your great power make dead people live, make dull of hearts alive again, make downcast hearts rejoice again. Lord, make drifting hearts tethered back to you again, binded to you again. Start with my own Father. Secures for us a living hope. The resurrection secures for us a living hope. I can already tell this isn't going to work. I am so sorry. (laughs) Heck, every time I move, my microphone is sticking. My wife told me to. I tried very hard. Uh, I still have the tie on. Make sure she knows that at the end of the service. She's over over there. Um, so the resurrection secures for us a living hope of an eternal inheritance that the world can't tarnish or take away. Of a living hope that, uh, of an eternal inheritance that the world can't tarnish or take away. So I was really shocked. We uh, went out and grabbed ice cream on, on Friday and I kind of jokingly asked this question and like three out of four of my group were able to answer it positively. So everybody familiar with the work of DJ Marshmallow? Some of you? Look! So I'm like shocked. My kids know who this is. Paul Sabaji almost knew who this was. Um, so anyways, I, just, I, was, I was reading this story, and so he, he bought a, a Ford Velociraptor, which I'd never heard of. Six by six, $350,000 truck. And I'm like, man, I wouldn't mind driving that. How about you? So he puts it in the, in the dealership for, for some repairs, and there's this random dude in California that's riding by on a bike. And he wants to take a ride, too. So he shoves his bike in the back of this $350,000 truck and goes on a joyride. And it takes him a couple hours, and the police find him, and and they go on this high-speed chase, and they're like, we can't pull him over. This truck is too big, until finally he smashes the $350,000 truck into a light post, and the light post won. Or maybe, you know, DJ Marshmallow isn't your thing, but, but jewelry heists are. The largest jewelry heist in history, $100 million of, of, of uncut stones and gold and silver was stolen out of Antwerp. $100 million. You've got to think there's some pretty good security guarding hundreds of millions of dollars of jewelry. Why do I tell you about these things? 
Because the most valuable and precious things on this earth that we can possess are never truly secure. doesn't matter how great our security is. It doesn't matter how safe the environment should be. They're never truly secure. They can be stolen. Think how easily they can be lost. Think how easily they can be threatened. And if they can't be lost and threatened, they certainly wear out. And we need this mechanic on every corner to keep the things running. Or they rust. Or they rot. Or they fade. Everything you put your hope in in this world lacks security and is wearing out. But, but, the resurrection of Jesus Christ secures for us in the lockbox of heaven an eternal hope, an eternal security. And, and up there it can't be stolen. Up there it can't be lost. Up there it can't be taken for a joyride and removed from us. Up there it will not rust. Where are we going to bank our most precious treasure? Jesus talked about this a lot, right? Are you going to lock it here where thieves break in and steal or moth eats it away or rust destroys it? Or we store your treasure in heaven. And so it's in the New Testament that begins with a blessing statement. And so blessing, just for simplicity's sake, it is praised be to God. We've gone through it more in detail in the psalm study, but blessed be, just praised be God. And so one of three letters, 2 Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father, uh, uh, blessed uh, the God of all comforts and the Father of mercies, and then in Ephesians. The rest of the New Testament, as you read, right, it's thanks. I give thanks to, to God my Father for you. There's these thanksgiving statements about the people. But, but this is one of three that talks about praised be to God. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means is whatever we're about to study, whatever we're about to read is not meant to simply be dissected as an argument or understood as a set of concepts. It is meant to saturate your heart and do something in you that responds out in praise. It's meant to affect you in some way. And so whatever we look at, whatever we just read, whatever we're talking about today, if you understand it, but you don't praise God for it, you've missed the point. You've missed the purpose. I've missed the point. And so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we praise him, Peter? What reason are you going to give us? Because of his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are going to praise him for this salvation that he's given us. And we'll talk about more than he just hasn't given it. He's done more than that. But he starts with according to his great mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, but instead you get something you need. And so God's great mercy does not give you what you deserve. What you deserve is punishment. What you deserve is separation from him forever. What you deserve is no way back. And you get the exact opposite. You get mercy. You get grace. You get the goodness of God in your life, the favor of God in your life, starting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exactly the opposite of what you deserve. Why? Because of his great mercy, he caused you to be born again to a living hope. So if you're sitting here and thinking, salvation was man's idea then you've missed it, right? It's not. Salvation is God's idea. Did you know that it talks about Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? How does that make any sense? 
Right? There was no sin before the foundation of the world. There was no people before the foundation of the world. There was no fall before the foundation of the world. And yet, the Lamb of God and the mind of God was slain. And before he chose to create the world and put people on it, he knew those people were going to blow it desperately. He knew that whatever filled your newspaper this morning was going to happen, and yet he chose that it was good to create anyways. And it was good to send it. And before that sin ever happened, he had in his mind this plan of salvation that included the death of his own son. That, that was before any of this ever happened. Salvation is God's idea. It's not our idea. There wasn't a group of people that got around and said, let's think something up as a way to get out of this mess. God had this idea. God had this eternal plan of salvation before he ever created any of it. But God caused us to be born again to a living hope. That is... God initiated salvation. You didn't initiate salvation. God pursued you. You never would have pursued him. And you're like, no, I, I think I would have chosen God. Mm-mm. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. It is God who pursued you. And if you're sitting here today, you're sitting here today at God's initiative. You're sitting here today because he came after your life, not because you went after his. You're like, no, no, I like God. I liked God even before I was saved. No, you like the God you made up. But you didn't like this God. You didn't like this God. He initiated the plan of salvation. He pursued you. He accomplished the work that led to salvation. He sent his son to live your life on your behalf, holy and righteous and perfect. He sent his son to die on a cross in your place. He sent his son to be raised again from the dead. He sent his son who also was raised or or, or was ascended back up and now sits at the right hand of God. He did everything that it took for salvation to be offered to you. So he pursues you. He accomplished the work of salvation. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and convict you of righteousness and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That you could believe and you could love and you could follow. He caused you to be born again to a living hope. But look at this. Let's stop a second. What is the basis of all this? What is the basis of a hope that's alive versus dead? What is the basis of how could God pursue you and initiate salvation in your life? What is the basis of this future inheritance that you think is out there and you hope so? The rock-solid fact of through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection 2,000 and some odd years ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead opens up the opportunity of salvation to you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes your hope living and vital and attached to something versus wishfully hoping something. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead all this guarantees and purchases for you this windfall at the end of the ages where you get the glorious inheritance co-shares with God of all that he possesses. The resurrection of Jesus Christ promises and guarantees this final salvation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes your faith that once it's tested, rewards it at the end of the age. The resurrection of Jesus Christ opens up your eyes to not the concept of salvation, the principles of salvation, but the person of Jesus Christ. And even not being able to see him physically, you fall in love with him in a way that wraps your life around it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. If it is true and it is true, then everything flows out of it. And then the resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have this 
living hope. And you think about it. Like the world is filled with things for you to hope in. The world is filled with things for you to have positive thoughts about. To latch your affections onto. The world is filled with things to say, yeah, I'm going to hope this. In this person. In this thing. In this job. In this stuff. And what are the implications of this passage? That hope is dead. That hope is dead in the sense that it is false. There's nothing behind it. There's no substance. That hope is false in the sense that that it can't hold the weight that you're trying to put on it. Think about the, the shoulders of the people around you, how badly some people have failed. And you're like, I put my hope, and their shoulders aren't big enough for my hope. Certainly not my eternal hopes. I put my hope in, 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 in the stuff or, or in, in the pursuits or in the success. And it's just not weight, It's just not strong enough. And so we have this hope dead that's false. There's no substance there. Or the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a hope that is alive. A hope that's beyond wishful thinking. A hope that is grounded in this past reality. A hope that is genuine hope because it's actually tied to something. A hope that is effective and living and vital. Hope hope that sustains because it's tied to something. He caused you to be born again to this right now, present tense, living hope for today. Not some spiritual day. Not some final day, but today. A hope that's alive and holds up because it's built on something. It's built on something that can hold it. And so you've been born again to this living hope. A real event with real significance that secures us a real future and a real eternity. Like we can face anything if we know it's going to get better. If it's going to end. If there's something better coming, we can face anything. Something what God, or, or has it entered the heart of man, what God has prepared for you. It is better than you could possibly dream. It's better than our best authors could possibly write about what God's made for you. But we can't dream it. It's too wonderful and it's too great. But it's yours. Guaranteed because Jesus died and because Jesus rose again. That's good news, by the way. Just, just hint. Just let him. All right. So, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so this living hope, this resurrection, also gives us an inheritance. It gives us this final windfall at the end of the age. And inheritance is a word that was used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the land of Israel. That we had an an inheritance of the land. And then within the land, the tribes had this inheritance within the land. Or people within those tribes had an inheritance that was part of that tribe's land. Well, when they use it in the New Testament, it gets a whole lot bigger and a whole lot better. The inheritance isn't we're going to get a little piece of this 60-mile sliver of the world in the Middle East called Israel. It's that we get to inherit the earth. We get to reign with God, uh, reign with Jesus by his side. We get to live in a place with a new heaven and a new earth. We get to live in a place that doesn't need light anymore because Jesus is the light. We get all of that, this inheritance. And this inheritance, unlike the stuff we have on this earth, unlike the jewelry and the most secure places we can possibly put it, this inheritance is 
undefiled. It can't be tarnished. This inheritance is is beautiful, and, and it can't lose its luster. This inheritance is imperishable. It can't fade. It can't wear out. It doesn't have a shelf life on it. It won't rust. It won't need to be tuned up at the mechanic. It won't take your stimulus check for the tune of 1250 bucks to make it run cold air again. None of that stuff is part of our inheritance anymore. It is imperishable, and it will not fade away. And just in case there's a little bit of a question mark, are we sure? I know we got this resurrection thing in the past, but are we sure? Look at the next line. Kept in heaven for you. Who's keeping it? So if God sovereignly secures your inheritance and he roots it in a past resurrection, it's a pretty certain thing. You have an inheritance that is unfading, that God himself is sovereignly securing for you. It's yours. And then this final salvation, waiting on the salvation, are who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we talk about salvation, and it's in the past. You believed in Jesus Christ. You were brought from death to life. That is a once and for all salvation that saves you from sin's condemnation forever. We also talk about salvation working out here and now. You are being changed. You're being made like Jesus. You're being freed from the power of sin. But what this text is talking about, and until that day, God's power guards you. Maybe I'm going to trip up and not make it. Even though Jesus did all the work and there's this eternity out there, maybe I'm going to trip up and not get there. You're being guarded by God's power. You're going to get there. Now, you might read this verse, and as I do sometimes, and you're thinking, well, it's, but we're, God's power is guarding us through faith, and so some of it does fall on me, right? I've got to faith it till the end. And if I don't faith it to the end, then there's a good chance I won't make it. And so, yes, there's this salvation, and if I just keep faith, I'll get there. But you're not reading the first part of the verse, are you? It is God's power that guards me for the salvation through faith. And so whatever through faith means, it can't mean i got to faith it till the end because it's God's power that's securing it. And so what is it that is being said? Your salvation is secure as the finished work of Jesus. It is as secure as God's power, which must mean that it is God's power that empowers your faith. That, that part of God's work, part of God's power, part of God's keeping is that he empowers you to keep believing. He sustains your faith. He enables your faith. He empowers your faith. He strengthens your faith. In the next verse, he's going to test it and prove it and strengthen it as part of this process. But God's power guards you, which means God's power is the power behind your faith, not your faith. Right? You probably have had seasons where if it's like, if it's on my faith, we're all in trouble. If it's on my faithfulness, we're all in trouble. If it's on God's power, I can go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and there'll be mercy that's new tomorrow morning. And so we're being kept. So what I would say is if that there is also this component of faith that God's empowering. And so I have to look. Is my faith intact? Is my faith growing me? Is my faith changing me? Is my faith shaping more and more who I am? Because God's power is empowering a faith, and that faith that's real actually changes me. And if it's not changing me, there are some really big question marks I need to ask about my eternity. 
If your faith has made zero difference in your life, or zero difference in your life over a really long period of time, not in the short term, but, but over time, if your faith has made no difference in your life, you should ask huge question marks about where you stand eternally. If your faith shapes your Easter and not your everyday, huge question marks about its ability to save you. If your faith shapes your Sundays and not your Monday through Saturdays, huge question marks of whether or not that will really save you and give you an eternity with God. Because the faith that saves you is empowered by God to change you. So, the resurrection secures for us a living hope of an eternal inheritance. Secondly, the the resurrection secures for us a living hope of joy in the face of suffering because our genuine faith is extremely precious. Of joy in the face of suffering because our genuine faith is extremely precious. And so, I'd ask you a question. What in your life is worth suffering for? What in your life is worth suffering for? And I guarantee you the answer is something. Because you're going to get up and go to work tomorrow, and it doesn't matter how tired you are. So it's worth suffering for. You're going to get up and go to work tomorrow, no matter if you're in six months where it's been stressful, and your boss has had pressure, and your work has problems, and everything's falling apart. You're going to get up and go to work tomorrow because some things are worth suffering for. Or you're going to keep going to class even though paper week and project week is coming up followed by finals week and it really stresses you out. But you're going to keep doing it because some things are worth suffering for. If you have teenage kids, you're going to have another conversation with that hard-headed teenager because some things are worth suffering for. Or your spouse, you're going to press back in that one more time. Have that one more conversation because some things are worth suffering for. And so the question is this. Where would you rank a proven, genuine, Jesus-seeing faith on your list of what's worth suffering for? Where would you place a proven, genuine, rich, Jesus-seeing faith On your list of worth suffering for. And I imagine if our hearts were honest. Not our faces would be like. Eh. I'll take the Jesus I have. If if it keeps me comfortable. Versus the more of Jesus. That the pain uh, uh, of suffering is going to take. Thankfully God knows better than we do. Thankfully he gives us what we need. To grow in holiness. Which is to grow in happiness. As opposed to what keeps us comfortable. And so look at this. As he walks into the next. Next section. So this is where that that spiritual thing out there called faith and that spiritual thing like resurrection intersects real life today. In this, whatever this is, we'll talk about it. You rejoice. Today you rejoice. Facing what you face, today you rejoice. In this you rejoice. So what is the in this? In this, what happened in verses 3 through 5, God caused you to be born again to a living hope. He raised Jesus from the dead. He gave you this inheritance. Wow, that's so wonderful. I can't wait to get to heaven. No, that is so wonderful that you can face today. That is so wonderful you can go through whatever you have to go through today. That's how wonderful it is so that you can have joy right now even though the next line is true. What's the next line? Even... If now, for a little while, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Those are not two words you can put together outside of these doors. Rejoice. Grief. Rejoice. 
suffer. You cannot walk outside the, the, the circle of the cross of Jesus Christ and put those two words together. They don't mix. But if everything in 3 through 5 is true, and it is, and if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, and it is, you can rejoice right now, even though right now, at the same period of time, you are grieved by various trials. You suffer. It's hard and it hurts. You can have these two things side by side in the church of Jesus Christ. These two things mix because there's a living hope, because there's a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if it is true that in God's presence is the fullness of joy, then joy can be found because of God's stances you find yourself in. What suffering, what hardship you find yourself in today. And so, God's presence is the fullness of joy. And if that's the case, then it's not crazy for Peter to say, in this you rejoice. It's not crazy for people like James to say, count it all joy when you have these various trials. It's not crazy for Paul to say in the book of Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because what we love and what is precious to us is so true that it doesn't matter what we lose beside it. We can weep and grieve and mourn joyfully. Because God's presence is still there. The intimacy of Jesus is still there. It's still ours. These promises are still true. And I can walk through both together. And have you found in life you need both? Because without a doubt, if you've lived long enough, you've had the trial. You've had the suffering. You've had the heartbreak. You've faced the pain. You've faced the test. But you're also offered the joy. You can have both and you need both. Because this world is filled with opportunities to rejoice while suffering. In fact, this world is going to force on you suffering. God is going to offer beside that a joy that's sustained underneath it. Doesn't take it away. Doesn't make it not hurt. It just puts a joy to sit side by side. With it. So we rejoice because of this future hope, but that's not the only reason, is it? We rejoice also because our suffering is purposeful. It does something. Right? Our suffering isn't wasted by God. Now, everybody on earth is going to suffer. But not everybody's suffering is going to be purposeful to do something in them. But here it says, it does something to us. We suffer. We suffer. Why? Because a tested and proven faith is worth faith is worth more than what you could lose to get it. Now, maybe not in my math accounting, but in God's it is. And then he uses this analogy, right? You've got gold, and faith is like gold. It's super valuable, but it's better than gold because it's eternally super valuable. And gold goes through a process along with all metals. And that process is is this heating fire that removes and melts impurities out of it. So it becomes a more valuable substance. So it becomes in some cases a stronger substance. Or in some cases a purer substance. And so the refining fire on gold makes it more valuable. Makes it purer. Now, what if we have a tested genuine faith? What if God graciously wants to take the impurities of our faith out, and he knows that your, your faith isn't going to be purified in your comfort. You found that, right? I, I drift super easy when I'm comfortable. I, I, I tend to autopilot my faith a whole lot more when everything's going the way it's supposed to. 
But there is some growth and some lessons and suffering that I will never get in comfort. And God knows that. And so he puts the fires of testing and affliction and suffering over our lives. Everybody has it, but ours are purposeful. And as he does that, the impurities of our faith come out. Our faith is refined. Something more valuable is thereafter. A a faith that has endured. A faith that keeps going. A faith that is pure. A faith that is transforming. A faith that keeps pressing on when it's hard. That's the result. And that's what he does. The same thing happens as James talks about it. Uh, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because that trial is going to give you perseverance. Perseverance means you can suffer and stay faithful. Perseverance means you can keep going instead of quitting. And there are lessons about when you keep going that you only learn when you press through, that you will never learn when you quit and go to another church, never learn when you quit and go to another marriage, never learn when you quit and, and go to another Sunday school. Never learn, quit when you, when you walk away from, from a discipling relationship because it's just too hard. There are lessons you can't learn without sticking through it. When it's hard. Because that perseverance produces maturity, James says. You don't get maturity by quitting too soon. You don't get maturity by it being easy. Faithfully with God, whatever it is in front of you. So this living hope allows you to press on. That pressing on does something in you that's worth it. In God's equation. Probably in yours as you reach the other side. Maybe not in the middle of it. Romans says the same thing. We rejoice in our sufferings because it it produces our endurance. Same thing as as, as perseverance. It produces endurance. The ability to keep running when I'm worn out or it's too hard. And what happens if I endure? I get a character that I can't have when everything's easy. And what happens if I have this character God wants for me? Hope. A hope that won't disappoint us. That's the end result. That's the end product. A tested and genuine faith, a faith that has been proven out through adversity. That's what God offers through trials. And right in the middle of it, there's a resurrection that holds my hope, even when what I'm looking at doesn't. All right, we won't, we'll hit the last one real quickly here. We, a faith in Jesus that leads to love and inexpressible joy as we wait for our final glory. A faith in Jesus that leads to love and inexpressible joy as we wait for glory. Let's just make it simple. When you are in love, everything else disappears and nothing else matters. Been there? When you are like madly in love, everything else fades into the background as irrelevant. Nothing else matters. And one of the great, one of the main ways we know that love is starting to kind of cool off, we start having petty frustrations and gripes with each other. Friction becomes really normal. Like, we never used to fight. Yeah, because you let your love and intimacy cool down, and all of a sudden it's like the real thing. And, and, and you got to face this real stuff. Right? But as our love is re-inflamed and our intimacy grows, our lives begin to completely orient. And we've got time for stuff we never had time for. So if you use that equation for your relationship with Jesus Christ... If you love him, your life naturally begins to orient around Jesus, around Jesus' people, around Jesus' truth. How do I know my love for Jesus is growing cold? 
It's very easy to drift. How do I know my love for Jesus is going cold? My life begins to orient around something besides him, besides his people, besides his church, besides his truth, besides prayer. It just starts to drift from all those things. Because I've got a love that's grown cold and my life no longer wraps around. And that's exactly what he says here. You haven't seen him physically with your eyes. You didn't get to witness him on earth and neither did any of us. But how, what is true about them? What should be true about us? You haven't seen, you don't see him, but you love him. He is so precious to your life that you can suffer waiting for glory. He is so precious to your life. You can be grieved by these trials right now. He is so valuable to you that what you lose you can joyfully sacrifice because what you've gained is better. But with the eyes of faith you do and you believe in him. You hear his word and you trust his word and you cling to his word and you walk faithfully with him. And so you have this faith that uh, is empowered by God. And then it leads to this faithfulness because your life is wrapped around what you love. And so your faithfulness is wrapped around Jesus. And you love to follow Jesus. And you love to do what Jesus would have you do. And you love to pursue him. And you love time with him. And you love obedience to him. That's faith. Faith always produces faithfulness over time and if there's a faithfulness problem check the source there's a faith problem if there's a faith problem check the real source you know what the real source is love if you got a faith problem you got a love problem if you got a faithfulness problem you've got a faith problem the greatest issues of your life aren't time aren't busyness aren't you've got other things to do The greatest problems of your life is you simply don't love Jesus as greatly as he deserves to be loved. And that's my greatest problem too. And that's why it's the work of God to believe. It's the work of God to see. It's the work of God to fall back in love with so that that love creates pursuit and obedience. And what a great day to be reminded of that. As we remember his death, his cross, and his resurrection. And if that doesn't inflame love within us, something, something's broken down here. Blessed be the God and Father through, through, because of the resurrection. Praise should come out. Love should come out. And, and love and faith mixed together completes itself in joy. The kind of joy you can't describe, you can only experience it. There aren't really words adequate enough to describe the joy of intimacy with God. Of Jesus saying, like, I say these words that that your joy may be full. Of John saying, I speak these words so that your joy may be full. That there's a joy that you can't adequately explain. You can only experience through a loving, faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. And you obtain the outcome, which is the salvation of your souls. Think about how generous and gracious God is. He could have created the world that you could survive in. But instead he created a world you can survive in and enjoy. He could have created one type of food. It would give you all the nutrients and it would keep you full and you wouldn't be hungry. But that's all you get. But what did he create? Every kind of flavor you can possibly imagine. And these brilliant creative people created by God that can make them into things that are amazing. He created a world for you not just to survive in. He created a world for you to enjoy. And the problem is instead of enjoying it to the glory of God, we enjoy it 
And we begin to set our joy on the stuff, on the spices, on the people, on the things that he made. As C.S. Lewis puts it, our, our desires aren't too strong for God. They're too weak. We want ambition. We want lust. We want uh, pride. We want vain pursuits. We want stuff. And you know what he compares it to? This, this city kid in the slums playing with mud pies because he has no vision in his mind of what it's like to sit on the beach. And that's us. We have no conception of what it's like. The glory and the majesty and the joy of intimacy with God. So we sit and we play with mud thinking that's life. And there's a better joy and there's a better life to be found. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that puts us in intimacy with God. That opens up our eyes to see Jesus. Not just this gospel, but to see Jesus. And to have a faith that is proven and rewarded. To have a faith that goes beyond principles. Because like, here's the way we look at faith. Bible. Yeah, I believe that. I certainly don't believe the Quran, so it must be the Bible. And Jesus, yeah. Easter, sure. You mean bunnies and Easter egg hunts and resurrection, right? All that's together. So yeah, we'll do Easter. And we have this set of checklists, mental facts we agree to that we call faith. But a church faith is not the same thing as a saving faith. A good works faith is not the same as a saving faith. Being a member of a church, being in the South, is not the same as having a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Being American is not the same thing as having a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Encounter the resurrected Jesus in a way that changes you is what's called saving faith. That's the kind of faith that makes you fall in love with Jesus. That's the kind of faith that puts you into this eternal inheritance and you will obtain now and forever the salvation of your souls. And so, repent and believe in Jesus practically as we wrap up. Repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin. It is your sin that separates you from a holy God. Put your faith in Jesus, not the facts of Jesus, not a set of principles of Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen one. Second way. And by the way, would your social media profile say that is what it is? Would your conversations with your friends say that's what it is? Like, oh yeah, we're in church. Of course, Jesus is my hope. Resurrection. Of course, my greatest joy is Jesus. I just sung about it. Would your life, after you leave here, say that's your greatest joy and your greatest hope? What's your greatest hope? And then lastly, how has God refined you and your faith? If you think about your faith journey, what are some of the things that he has used to purify it, to strengthen it, to bring you where you are today? And I promise you, I promise you there's some scars in that story. But it's the kind of scars that can produce a joy that holds up for the world's scars. How is God refined and is refining you? Our hope is a present tense hope because Jesus is alive and it's based on him. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, 
I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would, would be more and more precious to us. I pray, Father, that hope wouldn't be some thing we're waiting on when we die. It would be today. I pray that faith wouldn't be some thing that we think gets us into heaven, but it would be for today. I pray that our joy wouldn't be this thing we just sing about, but we don't have it. I pray that, God, you would invade our hearts and you would invade our lives with a vision for Jesus that makes our joy full. That you would give us the kind of joy that's going to hold up to tomorrow's problems and tomorrow's pain. God, we can't work that up. You can give it to us. You delight to give it to us because you delight to give yourself to us. Father, would you do it? Would you do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, God is a pursuing God. You may be here because your wife made you. You may be here because it's Easter. I've got to go to church somewhere. But you're not here by accident. You're here with a sovereign God running after your life. Will you listen? Will you listen? Jesus died and he rose again for your sins. For your sins that separate you from a holy God. Will you turn from your sin and will you put your faith, not your facts, not your mental ascent, the weight of your life in eternity, will you put it on Jesus Christ? Not on church, Jesus. Not on giving, Jesus. Not on your goodness, Jesus. Will you do that? Will you hear God's voice in this message calling you and welcoming you and will you turn and believe? Now, we can pray together. There's a white sheet in your bulletin. You can fill it out and say, I need to talk to somebody about this. We would love to talk to you. But maybe you're sitting here and you realize, God, my hopes, I put them on everything. I, I, I've scattered them all over the place and they're not holding up. I just want to turn my heart back to hope in Jesus through the resurrection. Maybe you set your joys and your affections on all these little mud pies, on all these little human things, on all this stuff that's around you. And you just realize it can't hold up. It's not good enough. It's certainly not as good as Jesus. And you just want to come and ask God to turn your heart back towards Jesus and away from these things. You can do that here. You can do that right where you are. Or maybe for you, it's celebration time. It's a time to just meditate and wonder and rejoice that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again for somebody like you. For somebody like me. And blessed be God. Praise is what comes out of that. You can do that there. You can do that where you are. Let's stand together and sing. You respond how the Lord is leading you during this time.